because it really does express uh, a feeling that we have and it is a feeling which I think is uh, accurate but it's misleading because it's crowding out another field and we're missing out on the second field that's the problem that I want to talk to you about today so first I'll describe where I think it is accurate what it, what it means where it, where it really is accurate but then we'll talk about why it's an incomplete picture, and since an incomplete picture could be misleading and could be dangerous. Everybody's life has a lot of different parts, a lot of different facets, different interactions. There's how you are with your friends and how you are with your parents and your siblings, and uh, how you deal with your responsibilities, studying, money, health, safety, and uh, we have standards, and we try to live up to them, sometimes we succeed, sometimes we fail. Sometimes, when I look at what I'm doing, and where I am, and where I'd like to be, sometimes I don't want to show where I really am, and what I really am. Maybe because I'm embarrassed, other people are so much ahead of me. <clears throat> and therefore, I pretend. I put on a false face, put on a mask, I pretend. I know that it will get me points. People will think better of me. The trouble is, what I do and what I show isn't really me. It isn't really what I am. And then, if things get tough, if there are pressures, if there are tensions, if there are sacrifices that have to be made, then I might find the tension intolerable and I might face a breakdown. A breakdown of my ability to function the way I want it to function. So, let's say, um, the person knows that uh, it's appropriate to be generous. Really, every time he puts his hand in his pocket to give out a shekel to somebody else, it's very difficult. But he knows that it's appropriate to be generous. And he may force himself to give, whereas each time he gives, he's kicking himself. Why are you giving it away? Uh, but I have to. I have to because 
people are expecting it, and people want it, and... Now, if you keep that up long enough, you begin to feel like a victim. So they're taking advantage of you. I really don't want to do this. I just can't help it. I can't help it because that's what they're expecting. I'm going to lose points. I'm going to lose my uh, status, my standing, my credibility. So I have to do it. But that builds up a certain pressure. That builds up a certain resentment. It can build up a certain anger. Because the real person is not expressing itself. Or pretending to have certain opinions. This can happen in yeshiva, and I'm mentioning it with that in mind. Everybody knows what the firm line is. You know, how you're supposed to feel about X, Y, Z. Or at least they think they know. They think they know because that's what the other Talmudim are saying. They would listen carefully. They'd also find that their teachers are not saying that. Only the other Talmudim are saying it. But it gets confused in their minds, and they know that at least the public have to go along with this, but deep down inside, they may feel that they're not representing themselves truly. For example, you do find among Talmudim, among students, prejudices against non-Jews, for example, and certain very nasty remarks about non-Jews, and especially good people who come in and hear that, and they can be very repelled by it, very turned off by it. Now, a person who's halfway in says, oh, well, that's the game. The game is to say things like that. But in his heart, he doesn't feel that's right. So now, what he does and what he feels are out of sync. They're not connected to one another. And because he's not truly representing himself, he will start to experience pressure and resentment and anger that he's being forced to say things that he doesn't believe. You have this in feeling, in prayer. We spoke about this a few weeks ago in another connection, but the problem is there. Uh, tefillah is a voter shibboleth. It's a service of the heart. Now, I open up the sitter, and I start reading words, and I find words that I can't agree with. I really don't agree with them. For many, coming from Western background, it's animal sacrifices. Do I really want to see the temple rebuilt, and animals slaughtered, and their blood poured out on the altar, and then their parts, some of them burned on the altar, and some of them eaten by the Kohanim, and some of them eaten by the people who brought do I really want to see this? Am I looking forward to that? Is this a goal, a hope of mine? For many people, especially starting out, the answer is no, not at all. You know, I'd be very happy if they'd ever brought them back. For me, prayer is good enough. The study of is very spiritual. Prayer is very spiritual. Slaughtering animals is very physical. True, I do eat hamburgers. That is true. And the hamburgers, they tell me, come from a slaughtered animal. I think that's what they tell me. And so I suppose somewhere down the chain there, somebody is splitting an animal's throat from my hamburger, but I don't see it, I don't see it, it you know, it's not in front of me, I'm just eating hamburgers. But to bring it back as part of the religion, part of the service of God, you know, it's very primitive, it's very uh, uh, savage, barbarian, and yet, in the prayer, I have to say these things. So, there is a danger that what I do, what I say, especially how I express myself in public, will be out of touch with what I am. What I am, what I really think, what my real values are. And that danger, I think, is recorded in this saying. To my own self be true. Don't get out of touch with what you really are. Don't get out of touch with what you really are. And 
if you find that you are required to do something that doesn't express you, it doesn't really express who you are and where you are, then don't just be manipulated and maneuvered by the circumstances to do what's out of touch. You have to work to put yourself back in touch. And if the Torah says that X is appropriate, now, well, there are two cases here. If it's what you pick up from other Talmudim, be very suspicious. The Talmudim often get it wrong, capital W. They think it's right, and they're full of enthusiasm, and they'll say, my teacher told me, and it could still be dead wrong, because they didn't understand their teacher. When I first came to Arsameh, there was another person who was teaching philosophy, Ashkafel, and very rapidly, Talmudim told me, how can you say that? He told us the exact opposite. So I called him up, and I said, um, the Talmudim reported, you said X, is that true? He said, X? No. Wait a minute. Oh, yes. I said A, and they inferred B, and they misunderstood B as C, and from C they made X. Now I see where they got it. Of course I didn't say X. I realized that the Talmudim are learning a brand new subject. And when you learn a brand new subject, it is very common for you to get it wrong, to get certain aspects wrong, to draw certain conclusions which you really don't follow. <coughs> so if the other Talmudim tell you something, and you feel pressure to go along with it, and, and you don't like it. Inside, you feel it's a mistake. The first thing you have to do is question it. Where did you get this from? Who said it? Go to the person who said it. Say, it's being reported that you said X. Did you really say X? Is that what you meant? Find out what the source is. Often, as I say, uh, the Talmudim will get it wrong. And if the, it really does come from a teacher, and uh, it's, it's right, just to go along and say, okay, it's right, so that's what I'm doing from now on, without worrying about how you really feel inside is a big danger. That's a big danger because you set up, you set up a, 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 a dissociation. You're disconnecting between what you're doing and what you're feeling. So you are not synchronized with yourself. You're out of sync. And that creates tension and at a certain point you can't take it anymore. We had a fellow, this was like 20 years or more, he went to a summer camp. He was uh, 22, I guess. Went to a summer camp where they exposed people to Judaism, and uh, he came in non-religious atheist, and he came out with a black hat, a black suit, and, you know, the whole thing. And then he came to our Senate. January, he came into our office and he said, you know, I'm davening three times a day, but I'm not sure there's anybody there listening. That means he put on the suit, and he put on the hat, and he was doing everything, but his feelings, his ideas, his understanding didn't come along. And now he says, I'm two people. I'm the person who's davening. Everybody looks up to me as if I'm really something. And inside, I don't know whether I believe anything or whether I'm feeling anything or whether I'm connected to this or not. That's terrible. That's something that's terrible. That should be avoided, I think, at almost all costs. Don't move your externals until your internals are coming along and keeping pace with the externals. And don't do something because you're looking over your shoulder at somebody else. We had a fellow here for six months with a ponytail, and when he cut it off, we, the staff, got together and we agreed it was too early. He shouldn't have cut it off. He didn't ask anybody. He just cut it off on his own. He didn't make it in the end. He moved too fast. Then another fellow who came with the earring, now this was like 18 years ago, so the earrings then were really, you know, that was a statement. And after three or four months, he took off the earring. But somebody asked him, why did he take it off? And he said he heard a from from Linda Weinbach about uh, 
the law that if you have a Jewish slave who's supposed to go out after seven years, and he doesn't want to go out after seven years, so then you bore a hole in his ear, and then you can keep him for the 50 years. So he said, I didn't want to advertise that I have a hole in my ear, and I'm like a slave. So he heard that schmooze, and he applied it to himself, and he took up the hearing. So we felt he's already that far advanced that he could take a schmooze and apply it to himself. Nobody told him to take it off. So, so it was okay. But this is the idea of keeping the keeping the inside and the outside relatively close so that you don't build up a gap. Because when you build up a gap, then you, you threaten to become out of sync with yourself. I'll, I'll just add a little bit to it, and I'll stop taking questions before I get to the second half. Uh, let me get I'll make it a little more detail. You can divide a person into three parts. There's his intellect, emotions, and actions. And for different people, these parts develop at different rates of speed. And here's where there's the danger of getting out of sync. So, you have an intellectual. Intellectual can uh, take on and take off ideas like you with a jacket. Okay, so it'll be communism. It'll be communism. I know the whole market. I know how the whole thing works. I know the principles. I know the applications. So I'll go that way. No, it'll be socialism. Go that way. Capitalism. Go that way. For intellectual, ideas uh, come on and off with, with relative ease. To bring your emotions along, that's another matter altogether. Your habits, your experiences. When I first met yeshivish people, someone shook my hand. You'll appreciate this. They can't appreciate it, but you'll appreciate it. I, I, I met him, I shook my hand, and he held my hand for three minutes. That was very weird. You know, where I came from, you didn't do that unless you had a certain kind of problem. <laughs> and for me, the association was very unpleasant. So, the idea is fine, but the feelings are something else. And sometimes the behaviors, changing the behaviors is very difficult. So, uh, for other people, the behaviors are easy, and the, and the ideas are difficult. You have to keep in mind holding yourself together. The ideas, the feelings, and the behavior should be roughly at the same, at the same level, because if one is running ahead and the other is lagging behind, you threaten getting out of sync with yourself. And when you're in an enthusiastic position, and everybody's pushing you, and everybody's moving forward, it's easy to identify with the part that moves fastest and not pay attention to the ones that are lagging behind because they're going to hold you back. But then there's a day of reckoning. There's a day of reckoning when you start feeling like you're coming apart of the scenes and you have to put yourself back together. Yeah. Um, yes, but you have to already be oriented in that direction. Let's say, you're, you're quoting actually from the Sefer Pulosa. A person is molded by his actions. <coughs> we naturally think a person with a certain character and his personality, and that causes his actions. But the, the opposite works also. If you perform actions, that can mold your personality. But, we're talking about, here about a person who wants to do it. A person who's using this as a tool to do it. So, uh, let's say that uh, a person has a trouble that he's stingy. It's hard for him to give up money. And he wants to give away money. Not because other people are doing it, and it's expected of him. But he himself wants to give away money. So already his mind is involved on the right side. And because your mind is involved on the right side, some feelings also, because your mind generates feelings also. Some feelings are on the right side, just that on the other side you have other feelings. So already two-thirds is in the right direction. You're trying to slap along the final third. 
Then you say to the person, if you make an effort to do it, even though you have the op- resistance, the opposition, the opposition will be overcome sooner or later. But, um, but uh, if it's just because of external expectations, then I think you're going to be in serious trouble. And, uh, but that's a sad case by that, yeah. If your mind isn't there, right, but you want to actually be there, then should you first be involved in the actions, or should you first get some information about it? It's a tricky question, because sometimes your mind can only get involved if, by doing it, you experience what it means. Some things you can only understand through experience. The person will say, you convince me that it's appropriate to listen to the violin. If you can convince me, then I'll listen. But uh, I'm not listening until you convince me. There are no words that you could say to explain to a person how beautiful the violin is. What we're saying is, just listen once. No, I want to have information. Convince me first, and then I'll listen. That person's shooting himself in the foot. Right? So some things, and you just have it like that. Convince me about shots. If you don't experience the Shabbos, you have a clue what it's about. You can read book after book after book, but unless you experience... So a person who says, I'll at least experiment. I'll at least experiment. I'll try to see what the experience is like, and I'll use that information to make it my mind, to bring my mind along. That is definitely appropriate. But a person for whom the information is not there, and the experience doesn't give it to them, then I'm inclined to say, most of the time, yes, the person should wait. I had a case many years ago, this was a girl at the Bay Yerushalayim. She tells me she's making blessings before she eats. Why? Because everybody else is. And it's funny to sit there in the lunchroom and eat without making blessings. Everybody will know. But she says, I don't believe in the blessings. And I don't believe in God. And I feel like a that I'm doing something that I don't believe in. What should I do? So I said, stop making the blessings. You can't build Judaism on a foundation of hypocrisy. Well, some of my colleagues found out what I had said. Boy, did they give it to me. What are you talking about? The holiness of the blessing will strengthen the neshama of the soul, the whole thing. Well, I acted on the basis of my understanding, my judgment, but when I had my colleagues uh, disagree with me. So I went to a friend, who I regard with great respect, and he told me he had the exact same question. And he went to the Shalom Zalman, an hour about to the excited the brother, and the Shalom Zalman said this, a person who doesn't believe in God and doesn't believe in the blessing, who says the words, that's not a blessing. That's when a global speaks. You understand something. That's not a blessing. A blessing is not being a parrot. A blessing is not pronouncing syllables that you don't believe in. That's not a blessing. A blessing is thanking and praising God for what he's given you. If you don't believe in God, you don't believe in the blessing, saying the words is not a blessing. It's just not a blessing. It isn't a blessing at all. So I was very happy to be vindicated, and, and not only that, but I learned something from it on a deep, much deeper level. So, um, here in this case, you have to bring, you have to bring the, the, the mind along, and uh, if it, the person says, I can't do this because I'm, I'm, I don't believe in it, and it's, and it's hypocrisy, then I say, yes, make sure the mind comes along first. Now, how much the mind has to, I wouldn't say it works always, but very often this is true, and how much the mind has to come along is another discussion. But your basic point is right, yes. If the mind is really rebelling, it's, uh, it's very difficult to justify just, just doing the action. Now, 
All this is crediting the self and being careful not to get out of touch with the inner self. This far, Shakespeare is okay. Shakespeare is teaching us something important. But, I think that there is a, 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 uh, another aspect, and here Shakespeare is saying it can be very dangerous. Let me give you an example. Let's discuss the example, and then I'll move on to the more general principle. When you become parents, you will face this problem. There are certain things that you will feel you should do for the sake of your children. But there are things you would never do if you didn't have children. And then the thought will be that it's hypocritical. Let's say, a certain measure of studying Torah. So you say, I know it's important for a child to see that his father studies Torah. There was a case written up like this, where the child left the house at 6 o'clock every morning to go to, to yeshiva. So the father got up at quarter six, so that at 10 to 6 he was sitting there with his kimono open, and the child left at 6, and at 6.01, bang, the kimono was closed and back to bed. But when the child got up, he saw his father, he was up there learning, right? Obviously, had the child not been leaving at that time, the father would never have gotten out of bed to this. Now, many people will tell you that this is terrible hypocrisy. You're doing something just to make an impression on the child, which isn't true to who you are. It isn't true to who you are. It's like lying about yourself. So that it's hypocrisy. I'm not talking now about the danger the child will find out. That's a separate issue. But it's hypocrisy. You're not being honest in doing such a thing, and therefore it's a terrible thing to do. What do you think? It has a, if it has a good effect on the, the child, then why is it a bad thing to do? It's the same concept as uh, if like, with parents and uh, the and like, they won't be separate. They want to, sorry, I didn't get the first part. Separate. Oh, they want to separate. Well. It's the same kind of concept, because it's only for the kids. There, often the problem is that it won't work, because the, the breakdown in that relationship is so bad that staying together won't be good for the kids. Right. We're talking about a case where the impact of the kids could be good, just that the parents doing it only for the child and not as a... Then if the kid finds out, so that's it. Correct. But let's leave that aside. Let's imagine the child is not going to find out. The argument here is this. That if, let's say the child will never find out and the impact on the child will be good. Still it's wrong. It's still wrong. Why? Because you're pretending to be something that you aren't. So you're not being true to yourself. You're lying about yourself. So he says he can't see why that's a, that's a problem. I'm inclined to be with it, but I want to see, want to see other reasons. Yeah. yeah um, when it's saying you're driving towards before becoming religious, you're not married or anything, but you see a well, people intend to get married, have children. However, if you don't get married Jewish, you know your children won't be Jewish, and you break it down a bit further, well, you look at people who don't get married Jewish and look at the reasons and look at your Self, and, uh, if, I, if I just 
that basically, in my case at least, uh, like seeing the future, seeing having Jewish children, grandchildren, and hopefully great-grandchildren is kind of the driving force, at least for me, to become religious. Okay, so now listen, this, this is an interesting application of the idea here. In other words, if I, if I understand what you're saying, if I imagine this, this person discovered that he was sterile, and he can't have children, then he would say, oh, so then I can marry a great. No problem. I just don't want to have problems with the children. But now there aren't going to be any children. There aren't going to be any children. So there's no reason to marry Jewish particularly. So again, you have the same problem. Are you doing it for yourself? Are you doing it for the children? Yeah. Yeah. What's better for the child to see his father reading his Gemara than say a provocative magazine? But if the Gemara isn't part of the father's character, certainly the father could find something that is part of his own character that would bestow um, a good impression upon the child. Something that maybe he could do that was chesed oriented or whatnot. That could also, you know, be part of his own character that would give a good impression over him to Jesus and such. Maybe, maybe you're right, and maybe that would be better. Maybe that would be better. But let's stick with my question. You're pointing out something that would be superior. Let's say I agree with you. It would be superior. What about the thing that I'm talking about, which isn't superior? The, the attack I'm considering is where a person says, not only isn't it the best, but it's bad. It's bad because you're lying about yourself, you're honest, you're, you're a hypocrite, and therefore you shouldn't do it. Yeah. What about that principle when you go it's all for the wrong intention, but eventually it comes to the right intention. If you go to school for, because it's a, a yeah. social thing to do, the fact that you have to do a phenomenon. Oh, yes. If you go to school because it's a social thing to do, but eventually you go to school for the last year and, and, and you're actually uh, you know, passing your relationship with God. So, uh, so if, if you apply it to this case, so, okay, so you might be getting up a quarter to six and fooling the kid at the moment. But there might be one spark after about 10 days of learning, whatever the case is, or so-called learning, and might get him involved properly. I hear. That's a, that's a good point. I just, uh, we, someone mentioned before, Adam Nithalafi from Wilson, it's really the same idea. But um, there, there are two things to mention here. First of all, Mr. Salanter puts a condition on that principle that you have to want to come to do it for its own sake. Number one. Besides, again, Let's say what you say is true. So you're really in his in his uh, ballpark. You're talking about better situation, best case scenario. I'm worried about the worst case scenario. I'm worried against where the, the father does it. He does it only for the child. He, he, if without the child, he never would have done it. And the attack is, if so, if so, then you're a hypocrite and you and you really shouldn't do it. I really don't think he's a hypocrite at all because what he's what he's what he's doing as a father is he's being a teacher, and so as a teacher he's instilling a value in his child. What is he? What, what value? The Gemara says a great thing. So even if he doesn't really feel it himself, he, he wants his he wants his child to know that it's a, it's a value that he has, and he wants and he wants to teach that value to his son. Yes. This isn't that got a few in the long term? Well, let's see. Let's, let's, let's see what it says before we talk about the long term for a second, because I this this is close to what I want. This is this is really where I, where I was trying to go with this. You see, the whole question is based on a false premise. The premise is, who am I really? I am really who I am, disconnected from everybody else. Now, if I do something for my child, that's not me really. No, that's just something external to me. It's what I do for him, but it's not really me. Why don't we recognize that I am really a father? 
I'm also a father. That's what I really am. Among the other things that I am, I'm a lot of things. And one of the things I really am as a father, and I really love my children. And I really want my children to have the best. So when, when I get up at, at 6 o'clock, or quarter 6, so when my child will see me learning, it means that I really want my child to have this benefit. And I know it's good for him. Why would that be hypocritical? It's not hypocritical for me as a father to do the best for my child. Okay, when the child's not home, he's away, I don't get up in the morning because I'm lazy, because I'm tired, because I don't get that much out of tomorrow learning. So, for my own learning, I wouldn't do it. But, watch the vocabulary now, but for my own parenting, I will get up. Why is my own parenting less me than my own learning? The whole idea that it's hypocritical is, is uh, I think, built on mistake here. Yeah. But how can one say that, that he won't find out? Even if it's the right thing to actually do, you can't say in a case where he won't find out. Good. Because if the child does find out, then it will totally take everything that he could have learned and just all the way on the opposite end. I think it depends upon how old the child is. Yeah, cause because the child might appreciate just the point that I'm making now. He might say to himself, look how much my father cares about me. Look how much my father loves me. That he wanted to, wanted to do something to inspire me, even though he himself can't live up to it, he, he, he was motivated just because of me. But then, if he's not at that age, he could say that father's in me. A phony. Yes, I know. Okay, so there are dangers here. But I, I agree with you. Let's say I agree with you. But then overall... I don't know, but all I want to know is whether this aspect, this aspect of hypocrisy applies. What I'm saying is that the aspect of hypocrisy doesn't apply to you. It doesn't apply to you. Yeah. How is this the worst case scenario? And all he does is turn to bitter his child. Aren't there a lot worse, like being alcoholic? You know, like, you know. No, no, okay. I, we only said the worst case scenario because he suggested something better and he suggested something better. That's if it really works on you and then you become interested and you do it for yourself eventually, right. that's much better. Right? If you find something which you could do representing yourself uh, without having to do, do something which wouldn't represent yourself, that would be much better. Uh, so, uh, yes, against those two much better scenarios, this is worse than they. I mean, worse wasn't the right word. It's not worse. It's just good. It's doing a good job. It's having a good effect. Right? But just not as good as the two scenarios that they suggested. Yeah. If the child finds out about the father, then even up until that point that he found out, it would still have a positive effect. A positive effect. I think he's worried that it would destroy it. And it'll destroy his faith, his faith in his like father. Said, like he'll probably, like, I mean, if, if the kid is somewhat intelligent, he'd probably look at the fact that, hey, like, my dad was getting up in the morning just so he could give me a good decision. He says, what age? what age? He finds out when he's eight, be one thing. He finds out when he's 13, it'd be another thing. He finds out when he's 16, it's another thing. It right? depends on how long he's doing it, too, doesn't it? I mean, if, if the father's getting up to go down to Chakras since the kid is five, and the kid knows it's the age of 13, he realizes why, why his father was there in the first place. Maybe he won't look at it as like he was, you know, my father, you know, my father doesn't believe this, why is he doing it? He might look at it as my father's doing this because he wants to instill something special and valuable in me. Right, so this, this is what I said. When the child may say, look how much he loves me, he's doing this for me. I mean, let's take, let's take a, a, a very simple example. The pa father plays ball with his child, right? Now, he would never play ball like that if he didn't have a son to play. Because it's a joke, you know, tossing the ball in the hand and, you know, and, and just hitting it on a little tap and letting it roll a few feet and then, and then throwing the ball back and forth. He would never play like that with anybody else. The child doesn't take that as hypocrisy. And no one takes it as hypocrisy. Because that's what a father does for a child. And when your child brings you from kindergarten that wonderful finger picking, 
which is really just a mess of colors. And the pirate says, oh, how beautiful, how wonderful, thank you very much, put it up on the refrigerator, you know, for a week. Is that regarded as hypocrisy, lies, or just encouraging the child by showing appreciation so that the child will develop, right? Okay, yeah. And just like when you have a Shabbos meal, like, and the child was, like, burnt, you know, and it was, like, wasn't good at all. You're like, oh, this is the worst child I've ever had. You're like, man, that was a good child. I love that meal. Thank you so much. But wonderful. you got to be careful. And you're as good as a guest. Because you're not coming back. But when you get married, <laughs> you're married, you know, your wife is... No, no, it's a guess. It's a guess. Honestly, the best thing. Now, um, what's the problem here? The problem here is that if I live up to the rule, be true to yourself, what happens if there are parts of myself that really need to be changed? Okay, we're considering a rule. The rule says, be true to yourself. Be true to yourself. What happens if there are parts of me that really need to be changed? Should I be true to myself, even those parts that need to be changed? Let's suppose a person has a temper. And somebody crosses him. And he's gnashing his teeth. And he has this slicing remark all prepared. And just, you know, just how to cut this person down. And then he says, ah, it's not nice to do that, and I shouldn't be angry, and so on, and he squeezes it in and doesn't, doesn't let it go, right? But would somebody say, listen, you really are angry, right? So, don't lie about yourself. Don't misrepresent yourself. Don't be a hypocrite. Let it out, you know, slash him on, because that's who you really are. Should I be true to my irascible self? That means the person who easily gets angry, right? Suppose the person's lazy. And he sets alarms and he sets up embarrassing situations to, to generate a little more uh, strength to overcome his laziness. Listen, you really are lazy, right? So don't lie about your laziness. Don't be a hypocrite. Don't be dishonest. You're lazy. You stay a man because that's who you are. That's who you really are. Right? Would that be dumb? <laughs> that would mean that you'll never make progress. You'll be stuck where you are forever because you're, not, you're supposed to be true to yourself. And that's who I am. So we have a really interesting problem here. <clears throat> we talk about um, expressing yourself and not getting out of touch with yourself and keeping tasks that things should be kept together that shouldn't be done in such a way that you can't make progress, that you can't move. If being true to yourself is this uh, passive, pessimistic attitude, you know, you are who you are, <clears throat> and just be true to that, then it's poison. Then it's poison. Because it doesn't allow for self-transformation. It doesn't allow for growth. See, you have to be very careful. I talked before about keeping the process together, keeping it slow and together so that one part doesn't get out of another part. I didn't talk about any parts being stuck. Maybe all the parts have to move. All the parts can move. Or one part is directing another part. But each part can come back and, and, and analyze the other part. And from each part you can see a perspective that the other part has to move. So none of it is stuck. So thine own self be true is not right if it means holding something constant that can't move. Let's take a look. If I use my logical mind, then I can see that sometimes my feelings are inappropriate. People have, let's say, inferiority complex. Those people feel 
that everybody's out to get them, and that whenever anybody else does well, it puts them in the shade, it makes them feel like they're nothing, and that everybody's looking down on them, and that's why they're so competitive, because how can I be something? If the other guy's something, you know, then I'm nothing. I'm, I'm, I'm down in the shade. So they have to fight with everybody. Their mind can tell them that the feelings are inappropriate. And then, you don't want to be true to those feelings. The contrary, you want to change those feelings. On the other hand, it can work the other way as well. People know when they think about certain subjects and when they analyze certain subjects, that thinking can generate feelings. And the feelings may themselves be poisonous feelings. So, a person learns not to think about certain things. Here's a very important example. And this, and this is really a problem. Uh, someday, in the not terribly distant future, you'll start to decide to get married. You know, what people do in our circle is about Jinukim. You've probably heard about that. That's one step before it's hell. <laughs> one step before Gehenna. So I got Jinukim. Now, <laughs> let's suppose a person has, uh, has a very challenging model. And you know, 10 Jinukim, 15 Jinukim, 20. I know a person went out over 60. 60 Jinukim. So what happens? Because of this one, that one, and that one, and that one, you say no, they say no, and you keep tabs. And each one you go out with, you're comparing with the previous ones. I said no to that one, and this one's worse. How can I say yes to this one? It'd be ridiculous. And I, this one's better. So what you're, you're, the mindset you're developing is a comparative mindset. How does this one stack up against all the other ones? Now the poison here is, what happens after you get married? Yours against hers. If, after you get married... You're still comparing. You look over your shoulder and say, well, I married this one, but look at that one over there. If I had seen that one before, would I have married this one? Maybe not. So now I got stuck. That's very dangerous. It's very dangerous. Here, what you have to do is train yourself that once you've made the decision, you stop comparing. Now, that's not easy. See, if you have a good model, an easy model, and after the second or third shit up, you get married, so you haven't gotten into that, Mode of comparing. But if you had 50 or 20 or 30 and then you got married, you have to work very hard to cut it out. And I would say it's most important in marriage, but it's also important in purchases. You buy a car. You know that you are not going to get the world's best deal on a car. Nobody gets the world's best deal on a car. So if you get a deal, next week somebody says, that's what you paid for that car, look what I got, and you eat yourself up, you will never enjoy the purpose purchase that you took. When one of our children, we went to buy an apartment for, for one of our children, we got a lawyer, the lawyer said, are you prepared to take a $100 bill and strike a match and burn it? He said, if you aren't, don't buy an apartment. Because you are going to lose money. They're going to cheat you, and you're going to lose money. And if you're not prepared to lose money, if you don't go into that, into that mindset, at the outset, you'll never enjoy the apartment you're going to buy. He was right. We, we got cheated for about $2,000. Because they are professional cheaters that you're an amateur. You know, and you'll never, you'll never compare with them. The Kaplanin here are just, you know, they're past masters at cheating. So here you can anticipate that if I think about this subject, I'm going to generate terribly negative emotions. So I shouldn't think about the subject. So, uh, what you have to have is a vision of the direction in which you want to develop and recognize that every part of you, every part of you will have to move in the direction of that image. 
And since every part of you will have to move, no part is going to be engraved in stone. Be true to this, because it's really who you are. There is nothing, nothing that you really are that's going to remain anchored and constant. Everything that you have is going to develop. Yeah, yeah but if you don't stand for anything, can't you fall for anything? If you don't stand for something, you can fall for anything, because you have nothing to grab on. I don't mean that... I don't mean that you, you, what you're saying is true. What you're saying is true and it's, and it's important. I don't mean that you don't stand for anything. I mean you don't stand for anything forever. Everything is open to examination. Everything is open to critique. Everything is open to being improved. Just limited. But at the time, of course, you can't change everything all at once. Right. Then you have no basis on which to do the changing. Notice what I said. I, mean, I, didn't, I didn't spell this out, but notice what I said. I said, your intellect can see that an emotion is there. From the point of your emotions, you can see there's something your intellect is doing this bad, but you're taking part of you and using it to criticize the other part. Right. That, I think, is correct. When you have this vision of the direction in which you're going, something in you responds to that vision. So that part of you is, at the moment anyway, in sync with the vision. Trouble is, later on the vision will change, and you understand more, you'll subtract certain things you misunderstood, and do things that you didn't appreciate before, so even the vision will change. Nothing is held absolutely constant. But in any move, obviously one part of you says the other part has to move. Somewhere in you has to come the motivation to move. So you're never moving everything all at once, at least not in the same project. Yeah. When you said earlier about um, when there's, when uh, be true to yourself, and you start, you're talking about somebody who gets angry, and when a situation comes up, and it's a situation that will make you angry, and grind your teeth, and you don't have the perfect uh, comment to cut them down, Instead of uh, instead of doing that because that's something that maybe you should work on, is it better to bring it down slowly as opposed to stop right away? As in, so instead, what I'm saying is instead of uh, saying that comment, maybe say to the person, "Listen, what you did really annoyed me." Okay, <laughs> and then after that, maybe you can be nicer about the way you said that. And then after that, I mean, take gradual steps as opposed to stopping it right away. Okay, let me tell you a story, and then I'll tell you a little about the history of, of psychology on this subject. It's really very instructive. Um, there's a story of a man who had terrible problems with anger, and uh, he, his business started to go down because customers didn't like dealing with him, and his workers didn't like dealing with him, and uh, his children started to avoid him, and his spouse really was turning against him, and he knew he had this terrible problem with anger. One close friend, still with his friend, said, listen, you know, there's a, I, I'm a chassid and I'm connected to a certain rabbi, and he's, he's a great person, very wise, yes, yes, and Shemaya, the help of him, go to him and, and tell him your problem, and we'll help you. So he said, don't be silly, those magic mar- mongers, you know, those, those superstitious people, I don't believe in that sort of stuff. But things got worse and worse, but finally, against his will, he had no choice but to go to the rabbi. So he went to the rabbi, when he came back, his friend said to him, Ooh, he went to the what did he say? He said, I told you these people are crazy, man. Silly, stupid people. He told me, there's nothing wrong with getting angry. There's nothing wrong with it. Here, anger is killing me, right? It's killing my whole, my whole life. Nothing wrong with getting angry. He said, pretend you're not angry. Just pretend. Pretending is not a way to live. To pretend to not, not be what you are. And so he laughed it off. But things got worse and worse. Until finally, he had no choice, so he tried. So, first time, he... Uh, he, uh, somebody crossed him, and he, but he goes, oh, have a nice day. That's good. <laughs> what did he discover? He discovered, little by little, that if you pretend not to be angry, then the anger itself also gradually dissipates. 
Because, now here's the psychology, because there's a circle here. There's the feeling and there's the expression. A person feels angry and he yells. The yelling makes him more angry. It doesn't make him less angry, it makes him more angry. Because I yelled, and that means that I have a right to be angry, and the person is definitely wrong. And, and, and then the anger wells up to justify the yelling, and it triggers more yelling, and you have a circle. But the trick is to stop the circle somewhere. To stop the circle somewhere. By the way, you know why I asked them to release tension? Because psychological tension expresses itself in tense muscles. You don't realize how tense your muscles are. And what the aspirin does is release the tension in the muscles. And that dissipates the psychological tension. Because it's a feedback system. And if you cut off the circle one place, then the circle doesn't go down. Anyway, about 20 years ago, a whole school of psychology taught that you can't bottle up anger inside. You have to express it. You have to get it out. And they taught that for about 10 years. The results were horrific. And then they reversed themselves and realized that it was a terrible mistake. So, you have to realize that the expression of anger usually reinforces the feeling, and then the feeling generates more expression. It's a terrible self-defeating circle. And if you can stop it, well, you have control over the, over the action. You don't have control over the feeling directly. Very rare that a person can decide to feel something. But, that to a certain extent, you can decide to do something. And what you do will change the feelings. Now, whether it should be all of a sudden or whether it should be gradual, I think would depend upon how severe the cases. Yes, if a person can't stop it altogether, then he should try to do it gradually. Um, so you're not saying one is better than the other. You say you have to fight. If you could do it, better. if you could do it suddenly, so then you'd be better off because it'll be, it'll be more rapid. But it might be too hard. My parents, Alain Michelle, both smoked, and they both smoked heavily. <coughs> and my father, Alain Michelle, he used to smoke cigars. He got cramps in his legs, and the doctor said, you continue smoking, in six months you'll be dead. So he just stopped cold turkey. So he used to smoke, I don't know, six, eight, eight cigars a day, stopped cold turkey, and he gave it up. My mother, also had to stop smoking. She did it by gradual diminution. Over, I don't know, about, about a year, just gradually cut them out until, until, until she stopped. So it's, it's different for different people. But if you can stop dead, then you, you stop the problem much more rapidly. It just may not be possible. Well, if you stop more rapidly, I mean, there's certain psychologi- uh, psychologies where if you can learn how to degrade from, the, from how bad the problem is to bring it to minimal, wouldn't it, wouldn't it make it easier for you to deal with other things that you see inside yourself that perhaps you need to fix that you can't stop, you know, just stop cold turkey? In general, in general, progress is, is the most important thing. You should be able to say, this week I'm not working. Progress is a very important thing. If you can face this week, I'm not where I was last week, that's terrific. And if you do that and pat yourself on the back and, and use it as an incentive, then eventually you'll get there to the place where you won't have to do it anymore at all. That's the most important thing. Just saying, if you can't do it quickly, that's the, that's the best thing to, to do. Now, um, how, how do you make progress in this, in this business of, of changing yourself? Assuming we are agreed, what we said in the first half, that you don't do it too rapidly. What can you do to move yourself along? I think here, there are a lot of strategies, and I don't know all of them. If this is a matter of concern to you, you should ask others as well. But one of the most important strategies 
is to associate with people who have the qualities that you want to develop. Personality is, uh, is communicable, as you say in communicable diseases. You hang around people who are a certain way, and you too will feel that way, and you'll be able to, to act that way. You know, if you, uh, I'll just give you a crude example, there's a, a crucial soccer match coming up. You probably will have better viewing at home in front of the television than you will in the stands. There's nobody in your way, and you have split cameras, and you have the, the you know, split screen, and you'll get everything. You'll see everything perfectly, perfect focus. They'll get nowhere to look, because you'll miss things, because you don't know where to look. So why does anybody go to the stadium? If the viewing is much better at home than the, the television, why do you spend money and time and effort to get to the stadium? Because when they make a goal, and 50,000 people jump to their feet and start yelling, you also jump to your feet and start yelling. Whereas at home, even with quadraphonic sound, you know, and a big screen, you don't jump up and yell when the goal is made. You don't feel the same thing because you're not together with people who are feeling the same thing. So here, if you want to acquire feelings, character, uh, character traits, to associate with people who have those character traits is a tremendous... First of all, it gives you an image. That's what it's like. It's really possible. I saw my Rebbe. I, I can see it in my mind's eyes. It must have been 25 years ago. He was in his shul in Boston. It was after Davin. And right there in public, somebody came up to him and started yelling at him. Yelling at him in public. And I was astonished. And I got so upset that I, I walked over and put myself in between the two of them, facing this other fellow, and I walked forward and pushed him out the door. I just kept walking and pushing him backwards and I pushed him out the door and closed the door. The Rebbe stood there and you didn't see any reaction at all. So later I asked him, I said, because this guy was yelling at you in your own shoe, in public, and you didn't react. See, he said to me, I will not get any reward in the world to come for this. Because I look at this person and I know about his home life and I know about his personal life, and I know the problems that he's suffering, he's facing, how can I get angry? That's what Rebbe said. But I know that if I were not standing in his shoes, with all that knowledge, it would have been very, very difficult to stand there and take it. Now, I saw that. So I saw, you know, a human being could really do this. And that made an impression on me, and it gave me a certain inspiration to try to work on my own reactions. And so I had not seen it, you could read it in books, but seeing it is an entirely different experience. Um, about three years ago, we finished that finished the cycle of the Dafyomi. Dafyomi, you know what that is? You guys know what that is? You read a page a, a day. Yeah, folio, really. It's two pages. A folio a day. And if you do that of the Talmud, you finish the Talmud every seven and a third years. And when it's finished, you have, there's a celebration, three years ago, there's a worldwide celebration. I still have the ticket in my, in my wallet. I don't give it up. Oh, you've done a little chest. So, in in the in Madison Square Garden, there were twenty thousand Jews. They took it over. In the in this the uh, National County Stadium, there were seventeen thousand Jews. I was there because my Rebbe was there. That's where I could get a ticket. Now, you daven Mincha and Myron with seventeen thousand people. 
one reporter in the in the um, Madison uh, Square Garden said that when the people stood up to pray, it was the only time in the history of the garden that it was quiet. Can you imagine Madison Square Garden dead silent with twenty thousand people there because they were happening. The reporter who said this was a Muslim. Very interesting. Very interesting. of the New York Times. Who would the New York Times send to cover such an event? <laughs> a Muslim. Anyway, but the, the, the press coverage was wonderful. It was wonderful. I remember I was there. I heard CBS the hour beforehand. They were reporting this event. It was a Sunday. And uh, they're reporting the event on, on, on the news. And they said, these Jews have been learning this a full year a day, seven and a third years. And they finally finished. And we had celebrations all over North America. And in, in, uh, in other countries, even in Melbourne, Australia, and there were simultaneous cameras. So when we said Kaddish, they said, yeah, you should be could see each other. It was wonderful. And, they, and so they gave this whole news report. <laughs> and in the end, they said, he finished seven and a third years going through 2,400, 2,700 folios of Talmud. You know what they're going to do tomorrow? They're going to start over again. That was a big kiddush Because you don't finish it. You don't finish it. It's a continuous process. There it felt, uh, but that's something which you stand there and the 17,000 people say, that's a different kash. And that experience lives with you. So the way in which to make progress, the, the, most, the single most important, most powerful uh, method is to associate with people, individuals and groups who are farther along than you are, and that is a, a great incentive to pick yourself up and, and push yourself forward. Questions? Something in the before? Okay. Okay.